day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. His heart is kind beyond all measure, gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toll with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me, with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me, he whose name is Counselor and Power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days, thy strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me he made. Amen. Thank you, Daniel and Joy. I don't know about you, but I am glad to be back. Means bouncing all over the bass in order to play that thing, so it, it's good for me. Yeah, it hurts. <laughs> so, okay, let's go and open our Bibles to Revelation chapter number two. Revelation chapter number two. We are working our way through the letters to the seven churches of the book of Revelations. And last week we talked about the church of Ephesus, and the main sin that God was confronting within the church of Ephesus was a dead orthodoxy. They stood for what was true, they fought for it, they knew those who were evil, they couldn't bear those who were evil, and they tried those who said they were apostles, but were not. But the Lord had one thing against them, they had left their first love. And many of the churches of the book of Revelation are going, to ha- are going to have some things that are positive, just like Ephesus. And many of them are going to have some things that are negative. But we have two churches specifically that do not actively have anything negative spoken about them. And the first one that we come across is going to be our church for tonight. It's, that is the church of the city of Smyrna. It says in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse number 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them that which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's go and open up in a word of prayer this evening.
Father, I pray that from the lesson of the Church of Smyrna, you would encourage and uplift our hearts, Father, to, to not be afraid, to not panic over the things that we see in the world that uh, look dark, that seem like there isn't any hope in the future. And Father, I just pray that as, as a church, we would draw encouragement from your message to, to this church. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the city of Smyrna and uh, the church, the, really the city of Smyrna, is known for its myrrh. You can kind of even hear that in the name uh, myrrh, right? Okay. And that myrrh was, was one of the things that made it popular, made it famous. It's possibly where the wise men purchased their myrrh as they were coming to offer their gifts to Jesus Christ. It is also possibly, possible that this is where they got the myrrh that they would anoint the body of Jesus with after he, after he had uh, been crucified and prepared for burial. Today, today, if you were to look for it on a map, it is the modern city of Izmir, in a harbor town of Turkey. So it's actually the closest harbor town of Turkey to Europe. So it gave people a lot of access going over, over into the Europe area over there. And out of all the churches in the book of Revelations, Smyrna and one other church, Church of Philadelphia, are the only ones who have nothing negative said about them. During this time, historically, Christians were facing great persecution. This is under the... Uh, uh, reign of Emperor Domitian. Later on, when, when persecution spread throughout the entire M Roman Empire, and that's what these churches are facing. This is what the, this is the back, backdrop on which John is writing to the church of Smyrna. And so many Christians had been killed and had been persecuted for their faith. In fact, most famous among those who were killed from the church of Smyrna is a man by the name of Polycarp. You do not know that name, Polycarp. Sounds like a fish, right? Okay, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he had a direct connection to the Apostles. And he was, he was a church leader in the church of Smyrna. About 60 years after this letter was written to Smyrna, Polycarp was burned at the stake for his faith. An earlier Christian by the name of Germanicus had fought in the Colosseum of Smyrna against wild animals and lasted a long time and that excited all of the people, and they came to see this, this guy fight, but when the proconsul tried to convince Germanicus to recant of his faith, he enraged a wild beast and let it kill him. And all the, all the audience in the, in the Colosseum started crying out, down with the atheists, because back then Christians were the atheists, okay? Because <laughs> we didn't believe in all the pagan gods, so we, we were the ones who were denying their gods. And so they were excited by his death, and the proconsul saw how excited they were, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and try to kill this man, Paul, the bishop, the pastor of the church of Smyrna. And so he sought to take him, but Polycarp escaped, went somewhere else with some friends. But one night he had a vision of his pillow on fire, and he took that to mean that God meant that he was supposed to be burned at the stake. And when the soldiers came to arrest him, he didn't fight back, he didn't flee, but he asked them for one hour to pray. Now, he didn't keep his word. He took two hours to pray. Okay, so he, he sat there and he prayed, and the soldiers granted him his request. They let him pray. And on seeing his faith, they asked, why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like, like this? Nevertheless, they're Roman soldiers. They did their duty. They arrested him. And on facing the stake, the proconsul pressured him, because of his age, to recant. To which Polycarp replied, 
Eighty and six years have I served him, said Polycarp, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So on facing death and persecution, Polycarp took a stand. He refused to recant of his faith, and he allowed himself to be put to death for the sake of Christ. And that's what this church in Revelations is facing. They were, the church is facing death, persecution, and poverty, and they are willing to endure that for the sake of Christ. And to them, Jesus gives but praise. Now we're going to look at this letter. It's, it's going to follow a similar format to the other letters where, first of all, we're going to see a description of Jesus Christ. And these descriptions, they're not accidents. They're on purpose. They're there for a reason. In, in uh, verse number, <clears throat> sorry, in verse, verse number, sorry, I'm getting lost. Verse number eight. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And these are significant descriptions of Jesus Christ. He is the first and the last. He was there before the world began. He was there before all these lost people decided to start persecuting the church, and he will be thereafter, meaning he's victorious. He's the one who's still standing at the end. But then it also says he was dead and is alive. This is ultimately the hope of the church of Smyrna is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one who is dead and is alive. And this was a theme that resonated with the people of Smyrna. Around 600 BC, the city of Smyrna was nearly destroyed by a Lydian king, and all that remained of it was a little tiny village. Later on, Alexander the Great came across it, and he fell in love with the city. And so he decided to rebuild and fortify the city, and so in this city, it became identified as a city that had been dead and was now alive. And it had been rebuilt multiple times on the same foundation. And so the situation that these Christians also made this description important to them because they were facing threats of death. And so it's important that Jesus Christ faced death, but he was alive. He came out victorious on the other side. Jesus' resurrection was a promise that though the world takes our lives away, we will be victorious with him in the resurrection. And it offered them hope of life. And that's going to be a key message in, in this letter, is this hope of life that he provides for them. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 17 through 22. I think this is an important passage. If you're ever preaching on the resurrection, this is an important passage to look at. 1 <clears throat> Corinthians chapter number 15, verse 17 through 22. Really, the whole chapter is great, but we're just going to focus on a small section of it here. It says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an unimportant, insignificant detail to the gospel. 
This is, this is why we can have faith in him, because he conquered death. And without the resurrection, our salvation, our faith is pointless. It is worthless. There's no one even be in this building if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, which makes me wonder how some churches can exist that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Why bother? Just go home and stay at home and watch TV, okay? But the, the gospel is centered around this concept of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 17 of the chapter that we just read, it says, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. It's empty. It's worthless. There is no hope if Jesus Christ is not dead. If he could not conquer death, then you are yet in your sins. You are still guilty before God. He has not accomplished your redemption if Jesus Christ has not raised from the dead. And then he says in verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Every Christian who has ever existed in the past who died believing in Jesus Christ, if Jesus is not raised, they died in vain. They, they are perished. They are gone. They have no hope of heaven. They have no hope of the resurrection if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. And then verse 19 says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And you think about the Christian faith, and we look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and because of that, we are willing to suffer some things that other people would not be willing to. We are willing to give up some things that other people may not be willing to give up to. We are willing to live a certain way, lifestyle. But if there is no hope of the future, if it's all just a dream, then we're just, we're, we're miserable. We're, we're placed our faith in shifting sand, in something that cannot bring any hope in the end. And so this, this concept of the resurrection is essential to the hope that these believers face. As they are facing persecution, they could hope, they could depend on, they can look forward to the resurrection because Jesus Christ was he that was dead and is alive. If Jesus Christ is not risen, then are, then are the, the dead not risen. That's basically the concept here, okay? And so Jesus is described as the hope for the future resurrection, and that is the, that is the comfort that he brings to this church. That is the description of Jesus Christ. But then secondly, we're going to see the condition of the church. This is where we'll spend most of our time, the condition of the church, <clears throat> Starting in verse number nine, we saw that all of the letters to the churches have th these two words repeated over and over and over again. I know. Jesus Christ knows exactly what they are going through. He knows their situation. And this, in the, in the case of the church of Smyrna, this is a comfort. He knows the persecution that they face. He knows everything that they are going through. But first of all, here it says, I know thy works. Just like Ephesus... They were, this was a church that did not cease to perform good works even in the face of persecution. When things were hard, they didn't stop serving God. They didn't give up on him. They continued serving and performing good works in the face of persecution and hardship. But he says, not only I know thy works, but I know thy tribulation. The Smyrna church faced many hardships in their stand for the Lord. The word tribulation here is kind of the idea of being tortured by placing weights on somebody. Now, last, last year, I took Katie on a date to uh, Frontier City. It was actually Halloween, so they had this magic show, okay, on, on Halloween that we went to and we watched. And there's this family magician show that they were doing, and the guy sat on a bed of nails, 
and then put a board over him and had all of his wife, his kids, all of them just pile up on top of him and just add more and more weight until they crushed him. Okay, kind of, kind of interesting. <clears throat> he didn't get crushed, obviously. Okay, so, but it's that kind of that same idea of adding more weights, more pressures on top as a form of torture. And for this church, they were facing weight after weight after weight that was being laid upon their shoulders. And to this church, it seemed like the weights kept getting added under their shoulders, and they didn't know how much they could handle. And so understanding where this church is, you can, you can, I know that some of you are in similar positions right now, where you feel like just more weights keep constantly getting put upon you, and you don't, you don't know how much you can hold. And you feel like God keeps adding more and more weights, and you don't know what, how much more of it you can take. It is to Christians like that that this letter is written. They're at a point where they, they're, they're at their wit's end. They feel the pressure. It is upon them. And they don't know how much they can keep on holding. So he says, I know thy works and I know thy tribulation. But then also he knows their poverty. Not only did it feel like they were being crushed under a great weight of their trials, but they faced poverty as well. Life, if you think about it, life just seems so much harder when you have to worry about how you're going to pay the bills on top of all this stuff. You've got all this persecution, all these struggles, and the money just doesn't seem to be there that you need to meet your needs, to provide for your future. And you look at the future and it's like, how is that ever going to happen? Because the money just isn't there. Um, I think of a friend of mine. He was a uh, church planner up in Seattle, and he had a child with severe birth defects, uh, very, very severe birth defects. And multiple times, their son, Will, has faced death. He has uh, struggled with keeping his feeding tube in, where it's popped out and they'd had to rush him to an emergency room. He's had re multiple reconstructive surgeries. But on top of that, this friend, as a church planter in Seattle, trying to establish a ministry, did not have a guaranteed income that was being provided for him. And Seattle's not a cheap city. Mr. Tillman, you know that, right? So it is, it is a not, not an easy place to live, okay? And so on top of all these weights, dealing with their child and the disabilities that he have, the ministry that they're trying to start up, and all these different things that they're doing, on top of all that is the pressure of not knowing where the money is going to come from to make it through another day and through another week. And they've, they've since had to make some ministry changes. But you can understand that that's kind of the situation that this church is facing. Not only are they facing constant trials, tribulation, persecution, and the weights that are laid upon them, but they have to deal with poverty as well. So it's written to a letter, this letter was written to a group of Christians who are facing financial pressures. And, often, and it, this is logical, because oftentimes persecution led to poverty, right? If, if I'm persecuted, actually, let's just back up here. If they're being persecuted, people are coming in usually, and they're stealing their goods. They're taking their things. They're breaking up their houses, maybe burning houses. In this society, you could not get a job unless the trade guild signed off on you, right? And in order to do that, you had to please those who were in authority, you, and you had to be involved in idolatry. And this church was not doing that. And so the trade guilds would ban them from being part of the trades, which meant you couldn't practice your skills. You couldn't just go and and become a uh, blacksmith and make armor or other things or tack for uh, horses and things like that. And that led 
to poverty. And so Jesus says here, I know thy poverty. The thing, the thing that we need to keep in, in mind here is that not only does God know it, but God allowed their poverty. I think a lot of times we read stories like George Mueller. And George Mueller, he had every need that, that he ever had was supplied to him, right? Because he'd pray and God would give it. There are times, though, that God sometimes allows us to go without because it, it forces us to depend on him, because it pushes us towards him. And we can get into this mindset of everything has to be taken care of right now exactly when I want it to be. And we get discouraged, we lose heart when we face poverty. But this church was facing poverty. They weren't, they weren't having abundance. They weren't, most of their needs weren't even provided for. And so sometimes God's will is through need so that we can find our dependence in Jesus Christ. So Jesus knows that they are poor financially, but this is what he says here. Notice in the little parentheses, which is kind of like an aside, he says, but thou art rich. In spite of their poverty, this church was rich before God. Throughout scripture, we have the paradox of poverty and riches it, consistently throughout, throughout the, the scriptures and the gospels. In Luke 6, verse 20, says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And the paradox right there. The poor are the ones who currently now have the kingdom of God. They are, they are the heirs to the kingdom. They have the riches, even though they are poor on this earth. In James 2, verse 5, it says, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, here's the contrast, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. The kingdom of God is filled with people who are not rich, who are not powerful. That does not mean that no rich man can be saved, but God's grace and power are most clearly seen in those who have needs, those who are struggling. And so the comfort that Jesus gives them is that even though they have nothing now, and to the world they are despised, they're rejected, and they're poor, but God says they were rich because God saw their faithfulness and he promised them a reward. As Christians, we can become consumed with the pursuit of money or comfortable standards of living. We all want the American dream. We want to have... A uh, nice, decent house with air conditioning, especially air conditioning. Okay. So, okay. I actually looked at a house out in Virginia that had no central heating and air because it was a colonial house and they'd done no upgrades to it. But it was really cheap because it had no central heating and air. <clears throat> but we want these standards of living, this comfort. We want the money to constantly be there so we can enjoy things. We could have nice furniture. We could have good meals that are prepared by our wives or ourselves, depending if or Roy, in your case, uh, something you microwaved, right? Okay, so but we, we want these, these meals that we, that we can have. We want to have this standard of living. But these believers were willing to let themselves be impoverished in order to obey God. That's what's at stake here. They could have gotten the wealth. They could have gotten the jobs, been invited back into the trades. How would they have done it? By denying their faith. They could have done all that. But in order to obey and be faithful to their Lord, they were willing to give up those things. They were willing to be impoverished. And so we must be careful as rich Americans that our money not, does not get our hearts. 
that it does not consume us and hold on to us. Matthew 6, verse 20 says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Our treasure that we should be striving for is an otherworldly treasure. It is a treasure in heaven. Now, it's nice to be able to provide for your families, and we ought to provide for our families. But our focus has to be on our heavenly Father and our heavenly kingdom and our heavenly treasure. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, this church, Church of Smyrna, is a church that was poor, but yet God said it was rich, right? There is another church in the book of Revelation. Let's turn to chapter number three. That is the exact opposite. Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18. This is the church of Laodicea, which I think more than any other church in the book of Revelations, this is the one that describes most of us. Verse 17 and 18. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. The church of Laodicea, they had the wealth. They had all these things. And when you, if you know anything about the church of Laodicea, this is not the top church on the list of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This is not the one that, that God praised in fact, I don't know that there's anything good said. I haven't gotten there yet, but there, I don't know that there's anything good said about the church of Laodicea. And they are, con they are a direct contrast with the church of Smyrna. And so American Christians oftentimes are more like the Laodicean Christians than they are the Smyrna Christians. They have to have their comforts. They have to have their standard of living. And if it means that I do less to serve God, I do less to please God, to glorify God, I take fewer stands to do so, then that's what I'm going to do in order to maintain the status quo and the comfort of, comfort of living and the American dream. And they are willing to give up a strong stand for their faith in order to gain that. And that was the church of Laodicea, but Smyrna was willing to sacrifice it all. They were willing to live in poverty so that they could be faithful to their Lord. Verse 9, he says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Blasphemy here is the idea of slander that left them open to public persecution. There's a specific group of people here who are doing this, the, the blasphemy. It says, um, which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. There's a lot of people who debate who these are. But to be honest, it's just easiest and natural to understand that they are actually Jews. Okay? The Jews who, um, actually, let's back up. The Christians would have been primarily Jews, right? In most churches, they would have been affiliated with the Jews. And so when the Romans looked at these Christians and saw them acting certain ways, refusing to offer sacrifices to the emperor or to participate in the temple worship and all these different things, the Romans would have assumed that the Christians were the Jews. And fearing the persecution that the Jews would face, 
they slandered, they maligned the Christians. This is historically proven that this happened in the city of Smyrna. And so we have, uh, let's see here, Eusebius says, uh, the Jews were involved in this persecution. Eusebius describing the death of says, the Jews being especially zealous ran to procure fuel for the burning. They actively were eagerly partic participating in the persecution of the Christians. And it says they say they are Jews, but they are not. And the, and the idea here goes back to Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through 29, which says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And the concept here is a true Jew is one who is a Jew by flesh, but also by spirit, who, is, who has followed his Messiah. The lost Jews, those who reject Jesus Christ, they have aligned themselves with Satan. That's how they become of the synagogue of Satan. They have aligned themselves with the devil against God and against his people, the Christians. And so the true Jew is the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so these Jews, these are the ones who are persecuting the believers here. And it says that they slandered them. And you look back at some of the historical reports about the, what Christians were said to be. Christians were often, often, as we saw earlier, slandered as atheists because they didn't hold to the pagan gods. They held to one true God who is not an idol, who is not formed by man's hands. And so they were called atheists. They were also called cannibals. Because in the Lord's Supper, what do you eat? This is my flesh, and this is my blood, right? And so the world looked at that ceremony, and they said, Christians, they're a bunch of cannibals eating people, okay? And then they also looked at them as have, committing orgies because of their holy kisses and their love feasts that they had. And they were disruptive to society because um, possibly if a wife became a Christian, that brought turmoil into the home, right? Roman, Greco-Roman culture of the day demanded that a wife have the same religion as her husband, okay? And so for a wife to become a Christian, that, uh, that uh, disrupts the home in their society. And all of Roman culture was based on the home. It was modeled after that home structure. And all these accusations were hur hurled at the Smyrna Christians, and it turned the people against them. Were any of them true? Were they cannibals? No, were they committing orgies? Were they doing any of these other things? Were they actively trying to disrupt society? No, that's not what they were doing. It was slander. It was slander brought against them by the Jews because the Jews didn't want to be associated with them. And the text says that they are, they are truly of the synagogue of Satan. And we know John 8 verse 44 says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. These unsaved Jews were showing that their father was the devil, even though they were of the lineage of Abraham. And what is the key birthmark of somebody who is a follower of Satan? It is lies. And that's what this slander was. It was just lies that was thrown against Christians. And so they tried to persecute. They tried to separate themselves 
from the Christians by tearing them down and by blaspheming them, by slandering them. And it's clear from this text that the persecution is laid at the feet of Satan. In, uh, let's see here, verse... Verse number nine, I know their works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And then he says, I'm missing the phrase. So, Okay, verse number 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Standing against these believers is the devil. The devil does not want you to stand faithful, to stand firm, to endure persecution, to endure poverty for the sake of Christ. He wants you to be persecuted. He wants you to give in. He wants wants to destroy you. And so here we see that Satan actively was fighting against this church in the city of Smyrna. Now let's look at the, uh, the solution, okay? I don't know if that's the best title for this point here but it's parallel with with the Ephesian church, okay? The Ephesian church, when they were confronted by their sin, they were told to repent of their sins, okay? The church church was called to repent. But to this church, Jesus speaks words of encouragement. He is not calling them to remember from where thou art fallen, to repent and to do the first works. They're already doing all that. Jesus praises them. So really, there isn't a solution to this other than an encouragement, a command that he gives them. The first thing he tells them to do here is found in verse number 10. says, fear none of those things. Do not be afraid. As we face persecution, as you face the world, I know a lot of you consume a lot of news on on TV probably. Um, It's probably unhealthy for you because generally, how do you come off after you hear it? I know Mrs. Carsey's has talked about this. She goes and listens to the news on the radio and she's discouraged and she's she's afraid by the things that we hear in the future. There isn't a lot of hope in America right now. And Jesus is calling us in, in light of all of these things not to be afraid. Do not fear. Fear causes us to do a lot of things that we shouldn't do. The fear of man bringeth destruction, right? Fear causes us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. The fear of the future causes us to make unwise decisions. Fear of men makes us play the hypocrites. And fear of persecution can cause some to deny their faith. With all that is against them, Jesus tells this church not to be afraid. Because fear will lead you in a direction that you don't want to go. It says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Don't be afraid of the persecution, the poverty, the trials, the death that you are going to face. And he says in the next phrase, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. It is a promise. It is a guarantee. You will suffer persecution. And then he tells us why. That ye may be tried or that you may be proven. You're, you're the, va- the value of, of a uh, metal is its purity. And you can find out its purity by putting it through fire, which purges it. But this persecution, the casting of these people into prison, shows the truth of their faith. So he tells them, first of all, do not be afraid. Secondly, he tells them, be thou faithful unto death. Don't be afraid, but be faithful. Stand firm. He tells them to be faithful unto death. It is assumed 
that, he is not, that God is not planning on rescuing these people, not all of them, from persecution. Because some of them will need to be faithful to what point? To the point of death. Okay, and I think the average Christian today who is afraid of what their co-workers will say about them at work needs to take this to heart. Do not be afraid, but be faithful even to the point of death. What point, at what point do we stop being bold for the Lord? Do we stop taking a stand for what is right? Do we stop witnessing for the Lord? How can we assume that we will be faithful when our lives are at stake if we won't even be faithful and stand when it's just somebody saying something mean about us, okay? I think of passages like Jeremiah 12, verse 5, which says, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? Okay? If you can't keep up with the men who are running on foot... How are you going to keep up with the horses? I would hate to run a 5K with a bunch of horses, okay? So, but if, you, if, it's, if it's wearied you to just do a jog, how are you going to run? And if it's wearied you to run, how are you going to continue to sprint with the horses, okay? And then he uses this analogy, and he says, um, if, the, if in the land of peace, where everything is perfect, you have everything that you need, all your needs are provided for you, are we not in a land of peace? Do we not have everything provided for us? We have all the blessings of America wherein we trust and they wearied us. Then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? And this is the river Jordan as, it, as the waters flood into the river and it's violent, it's tumultuous. If you can't handle the peaceful land, how are you going to handle the swelling, the violent, the tumultuous waters of the river Jordan? And so I think as, as believers, when we face soft persecution. We face small aspects of persecution in our lives as Christians. And those things send us into a tailspin and we are afraid and we are not standing firm. We are compromising. We are hiding. We are ducking our heads. How can we have faith that, that when death is presented, we're going to stand strong in the face of death if we can't even do it in our lives today. When all else is against us, when the world is crashing down on our shoulders, and when we don't know where the money is going to come from, we have two commands from Jesus to this church. First of all, fear not. Secondly, stay faithful. Don't give up. Then let's look at the results here. <clears throat> the result, it starts at verse number 10. Be thou faithful unto death, last phrase, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Jesus has promised to this church that was facing death, coming from Jesus who was dead and is alive, his promise to them is that he will give them the crown of life. He will give them the crown of life. We have an eternal life that the world cannot take away. That, but he says here, we will not be hurt by the second death. We see the second death referenced in the book of Revelations and other passages. Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is 
the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This promise is given to the one who overcomes. He will have eternal life and never face the second death. How do we, how do we know who an overcomer is though, right? Um, are all Christ- I believe all Christians are overcomers. And we can see that in 1 John 5 verse 4. Um, Pastor Carsey's just started teaching through the book of 1 John, so I'm looking forward to This is a long ways away, probably chapter 5, verse 4. But <laughs> so by the time we get here, it will be crystal clear. He says in 5, 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. As we face these persecutions and these trials... We must stand firm in our faith. What is faith? It is trust. It is dependence on who Jesus Christ is. And, we, and by doing so, we overcome the world, and he promises us life. The word overcome comes from the word from which we get our brand, our brand name, Nike. Okay? It means to conquer. So by faith in Jesus Christ, we have conquered death, and we have conquered hell. And no matter what the world does to our bodies, we will have victory through Jesus Christ. Now, this is the application that I think the text demands of us, okay? As Christians, we may not have wealth. We may not have popularity. We may not have ease. We may not even have the good life where we have all of the standards of living that we hope for. All of those things should be able to be taken away. But what Jesus is saying to these believers is that you don't need those things. Who ultimately do we need? That's really the question. We need him. He is saying, you don't need them, you need me. Because who is life? Who is eternal life? Who is, who is our hope? Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. We can face the loss of wealth. We can face the loss of comforts. We can face the loss of popularity, the loss of jobs because of our faith. And ultimately, those things should push us and should drive us to Jesus Christ. We don't need those things. What we need is a person. What we need is him. All I need is Christ. He will give us the crown of life, and he is that life. And so I have Jesus, and he is all that I need. If you are a Christian who is burdened down with unending work, if the weights of life are crushing you down, if you're facing financial struggles, remember that in the end, all you really need is Jesus Christ. Remember all that Christ has done for us, the blessings that he has given to us. And then Polycarp concluded that at the end of his life, Christ had done him no wrong. So how could he abandon him now? Facing the loss of everything, the poverty, the trials. This faith, this church had a promise that Christ would give himself to them. And that is all that we need. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll have a time of invitation tonight.